Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major and in this episode we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. We're on the sixth part of the reading and we're on chapter seven. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can not only support the podcast but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 7. Struggle to the Azores The long trip to the Azores had been undertaken after much deliberation, for though Portugal would have been easier to reach, the thought of losing so much valuable westing was too much for us, so Azores it was. A longitude sight taken the day we fitted the temporary rudder, showed that in the past three days we had lost no less than four degrees of westerly longitude. Minor and major calamities, frustration and despair keep pace with excitement, beauty and exhilaration on long ocean voyages in small craft. One is never quite sure which emotion is coming next. At 11.55pm that night we were in despair because our makeshift rudder came adrift and once again we lay disabled on the ocean. Then our spirits rose again as quickly as they had dropped when we discovered we could persuade the Nova to sail herself under jib, trysail and mizzen. It was a beautiful night. A moderate west-southwesterly wind had a warm, friendly feeling, and the stars looking as though they had been lowered on strings like fairy lights. The following day was as lovely as the night had been, and the wind very kindly backed to northwest and enabled us to lay a course straight for the Azores. But our progress was slow, for we were sadly unvercanvassed with only the trysail instead of the main. The constant battle with gales was rapidly fading from our minds under the soporific influence of hot sun, blue sky and sea. The barometer rose with our spirits and reached the highest so far recorded, 30 inches. That evening we finished reading Samuel Pepys's diary. Stanley read aloud, for the single cabin lamp was on his side of the cabin. We enjoyed it very much, for it always transported us to those distant days of good food and bad women and lessened the ever-present tension we felt. The next day, the 15th of June, the barometer went up to 30.2 inches and the lazy wind went to sleep and we were left motionless except for the gentle rise and fall of the long ocean swell. It was an undress crew on the Nova that day. From the Bay of Biscay we had been followed by three stormy petrels. They came near the boat in rough weather but sometimes they left us in calms and this day they deserted us again. Their size is about that of a swift, but they are sooty black in colour with a diagonal khaki stripe on each wing and a white chevron on the tail. On rare occasions we could hear their single high-pitched note, only slightly lower than that of a bat. We never saw them sit on the water, though frequently they walked on it with wings extended, picking up what must have been plankton with their thin, curved beaks. To cheer us after our loss of the stormy petrels, a large school of porpoises came near and entertained us with their playful gambolings. In the distance, a whale spouted and an ancient turtle glided past, swimming lazily nowhere in particular. The ocean is a fascinating place, 
on a day like this. In the evening, the wind recovered from the heat of the day and pushed us slowly on towards the Azores until 2am when it evidently felt exhausted and left us. We took advantage of the situation and, as there are few ships about in this part of the ocean, we both went to sleep. When we awoke, it was a different scene from yesterday's idyll. The sky was overcast and in the distance a long low bank of black cloud was discharging rain. Still, in spite of the unpleasant looking sky, a moderate southwest wind was blowing and we hurriedly made sail. Although the wind was blowing from the direction we wished to go, we were making some southing for we tacked every four hours, heading south by east on the starboard tack and west by north on the port tack. We noticed an odd thing in the afternoon some bubbles coming from the bow as the Nova glided through the water reflected a distorted view of us sailing. Each looked like a miniature ship in a domed-shaped bottle, complete in every detail. That night, the porpoises revisited us, but this time they put on a firework display. The water was very phosphorescent, and as they dived around us, each one looked like a fiery comet. Then a sharp fin and a rounded back would break the surface and glisten blackly in the moonlight. On the 17th of June, we worked out our position to be 130 miles northeast of Tercera in the Azores. We were now very worried at the time we were taking, for we were not at all keen to be off North America when the West Indian hurricanes came swirling up the Gulf Stream. We had begun a fight against time. The 17th proved to be a real morale breaker. The morning was grey and a heavy swell came up from the south. Our barometer told us that trouble was coming for it started to plunge downwards at an alarming rate. In the later afternoon it began to rain, but by six o'clock it faded away to a light drizzle and then wind took its place, blowing hard from the southeast. With the wind on our beam we were at last able to make fast progress despite the threatening conditions. The temporary rudder which we had repaired was working as well as could be expected, but we were doubtful whether it could stand for long the strains to which it was being subjected in the rough going. Our fears were justified. It soon broke away again. Nothing daunted, we rearranged the sails so that the Nova could continue on her course. At midnight, the wind increased to a full gale, and we had to lower all sail except the mizzen and put out the sea anchor. We drifted slowly northwest away from our goal. We thought that this was a sample of June weather for the supposed sunny latitudes. God help the sailor in winter. The following morning showed no relief from the gale, which still blew from the southeast. The wind was blowing about 40 to 45 miles an hour, but our little ship was mastering the now large broken seas with a determination that once more gave us confidence. We felt the effect of the violent motion which made sleep impossible, but tried to cheer each other up by saying that we should make up for lost time and that when we reached the Azores we would sleep for a full 24 hours. The monotony of waiting was broken at midday by a shark who was going back and forth over our sea anchor rope. If the great beast decided to nip it through, it might be dangerous for us. With the sea anchor gone, the boat would turn broadside on to the big seas. 
and then we should stand a good chance of being turned turtle again, and the second time we might not come off so luckily. Charles, who was on watch at the time, dived into the cabin and returned with a wicked-looking dagger, which he proceeded to lash to the end of the bamboo spinnaker pole. When he had completed the task, he saw that the shark had finished his fun and games with the anchor rope, and was now right alongside the cockpit, looking at him with a speculative eye. A shark is a forbidding creature at the best of times, but when a tiny boat is riding out a gale, and one sees it almost level with the deck, it looks horribly sinister. It was enough for Charles. He lunged so hard at the beast with his improvised spear that he nearly followed. The point of the dagger merely glanced off the creature's tough hide, but being of the cowardly breed, he fled, much to the relief of the Nova's crew. The wind moderated in the afternoon, and we were able to put on some sail and recover the ground that we had lost. We continued slowly, but steadily on our way, and on the 20th we could actually see, uh, but let the log for that day tell its tale. 20th of June, a proud day for me. My navigation has proved itself. I said to Stanley earlier, with a confidence I didn't really feel, that Tassira was 30 miles away. At 11am, we could see the clear outline of the hills. Before that, we didn't know whether we were gazing at cloud or land. We have been at sea nearly a month, and this is my first landfall. To understand the terrific thrill, you must have the experience yourself. We celebrated by eating some substantial food, the first for many a day. Later in the log, Stanley has gone to bed with a pain in his tum. I'm not surprised, for in the last 12 hours, he has eaten two large portions of ham, a large quantity of fried fat bacon with extra rind from me, an entire tin of steak and kidney pudding for four people, half a tin of peas, tomato soup, biscuits and marmalade, numerous cups of black tea without any milk, some rum and some coffee. The sighting of land has eased the ever-present tension. As we drew nearer in the afternoon, the Azores looked fascinating islands. On Tessera, the first sighted, we could make out the cultivated fields and tiny houses. High above them towered a mountain, its peak hidden in white cloud. In the blue misty distance loomed the outline of St. Georges, and just before dark we could see the island of Graciosa, looking as beautiful as its name. The spell of the islands didn't leave us, even when they had disappeared into the night. For the flashing light on Serata Point, Tessera, told us that all was well and the islands had not been a dream. A small steamer, coming from the direction of Graciosa and heading for Tessera, gave us a few minutes of anxiety, for she passed very close to us. We stood with a torch ready to flash if there was any danger of collision. We could hear voices as she passed close by. How good it was to hear them. After a peaceful, pleasant sail all night, the sun peeped over the summit of Tessera's black-topped mountain, and the islands around us could be seen with stark clarity. San George's northern cliffs were six miles away. A little further off on our starboard bow was Graciosa, looking just like a little island gem Robert Louis Stevenson must have had in his mind when he wrote Treasure Island. Tessera, so close to us on the port beam, glowed with an amazing range of colours, each neat little field a brilliant green or rich brown, 
climbing high up towards the dark summit of the mountain. The few tiny houses to be seen were washed with a variety of pastel shades, pale yellow, pink and russet brown. All round was the velvety blue of the sea, which broke with a smother of dazzling white among the black volcanic rocks. The sheer beauty of the scene was almost too much for us. It seemed too incredible to be real. Neither of us had at any time seen anything to compare with the breathtaking loveliness of it all. By mid-morning, we were sailing about half a mile off St. George's 800-foot cliffs, their black faces slashed with a thousand twisted ravines. We had a wind gently blowing from astern of us, so we hoisted our spinnaker and said with confidence that we should be able to cover the 28-mile stretch along St. George before nightfall. Six hours later, we were seven miles further on. Seven hours later, we were a mile further back. We surmised that there was a strong current against us and the wind was too weak to overcome it. All night we sailed and all the next day, our total distance was 12 miles, half a mile an hour. Later, we began to talk of hurricanes in the Gulf Stream again. Charles had been in a hurricane and although in a 20,000 ton vessel, it was such a spectacle of raging madness that even the large ship seemed helpless and inadequate to cope with the situation. The wind at the peak of the hurricane was 125 miles an hour, cutting off the tops of gigantic waves and sending them roaring downwind like water from a burst dam. The spray, mixed with the horizontally driven rain, filled the air so that visibility was reduced to a small circle, a circle into which a green hill of water with a miniature Niagara Falls running down the side would keep appearing and threatening to engulf all before it. This particular hurricane, September 1938, caused great loss of life and destruction of property on the New England coast. No, we were definitely anxious to avoid a tussle with a hurricane. Two things gave us some excitement. We went swimming during a calm spell in the lovely crystal clear water that was just the right temperature. Suddenly, we spied the top of a black fin cutting through the water towards us like the periscope of an enemy submarine. We swam madly back to the boat, leaving bits of skin on the topsides in our frantic haste to scramble to safety. It took a long time to get our breath back, so out of condition were we. But when we did, we couldn't help roaring with laughter at the picture we must have presented to any onlooker. The second episode took place in the afternoon of that gloriously sunny day. A turtle was sighted fast asleep about a hundred yards from the boat. There was little or no wind, so Stanley hurriedly inflated our one-man rubber dinghy, threw it overboard, climbed in and using his hands as paddles, made his way as quietly as possible towards his unsuspecting victim. Just as he was manoeuvring into position to make an easy capture, it awoke, saw a deadly enemy and dived. Nothing daunted, its pursuer lunged after it with a long arm and managed to grab a hind leg. Then he heaved his captive upside down into the dinghy, nearly capsizing it at the same time. The turtle nearly won his freedom again soon after. A crab residing in the shade of the beast's stomach didn't like being suddenly put 
into the glare of the sun and made a dive for Stanley's nether regions. Immediate reaction took place and there was much violent movement in the tiny fragile craft. It looked as if nothing could save it from emptying its occupants into the sea when suddenly all was quiet again and a small crab was plumbing the depths. We put our turtle into the aft locker thinking we might convert it into cash when we reached Horta for we hadn't a penny between us. After being becalmed all night, the wind gods must have got tired of us dawdling along the shores of San Jorge, for no sooner had the sun appeared above the horizon than they sent us a blast of wind which came hurtling down the steep winds and fell off the cliff straight upon us. At the time, we had all sail set, including the spinnaker. The sudden noise of flogging sails and frenzied shouts from the man on watch brought the off-watch asleep below, up on deck in a hurry, thinking a horrible end awaited him. We quickly got the spinnaker down and tucked a reef in the mainsail. Then we surged through smooth water at a refreshing speed. Soon, the tall pinnacle of rock standing alone at the western tip of the island was ahead, and we were looking forward to seeing round the corner. Coming towards us was a native motor fishing boat. It couldn't have been more than 30 feet long, but it had a crew of over 20 men hanging on like long-limbed flies. They gave us a boisterous greeting as they passed, and dozens of arms waved energetically. With a feeling of suspense, we whipped round the corner, and before our eyes lay a picture of breathtaking grandeur. Mount Pico rose majestically from Pico Island in a perfectly shaped cone for over 7,000 feet, with a circlet of fleecy white clouds around its dark head. At its base, hundreds of well-defined fields were visible, and a few stunted, wind-drunk trees stood silhouetted against the sky. A pretty little village, straggling along the coast as though cowed by the size of Pico, standing behind it. Across the narrow channel lay the island of Fayal, looking very alluring to the two sea-weary mariners, with its softly curving hills and numerous slowly turning windmills, giving it an air of simple, age-old domesticity. The darker green of vineyards among the pale green of bamboo cane hedges told of wine in plenty. The cliffs gave way occasionally to sun-drenched beaches. We steered straight for Fayal like a homing pigeon on the last leg of its journey. When we were about half a mile away, we could see ahead of us a thin ribbon of water pouring over the cliffs, but it never reached the sea below, for halfway down its 200-foot drop, it began to disintegrate and form into a heavy grey mist, each droplet becoming a prism in a radiant rainbow. Nearer and nearer we approached this beautiful sight, and soon we could see that from every crevasse on the cliff long green streamers hung gracefully down, sparkling brilliantly with drops of water. Then we heard the chorus of a thousand singing birds. The beauty of it all nearly led to our complete destruction. We were so enthralled we delayed putting the boat about. Suddenly we realised that we were less than twenty yards away from the base of the cliffs, and then, to our horror, our makeshift rudder proved inadequate for the job and the boat held her course straight for the cliffs. With frantic haste, we lowered the main and mizzen, fortunately only a matter of seconds on the Nova, and then with agonising slowness, we wore round. 
Even so, it seemed too late, for we could plainly see large boulders underneath and held our breath for the first crashing bumps to come. Slowly, our boat turned among the rocks just below, and disaster was averted. Two white, strained faces looked at each other and said very shakily, "'Gosh, that was close!' We tacked along the foreshore of Fayal, headed for Horta, and after two hours of hard sailing, we passed the last spur of rock that hid the port from view. There before us was the haven we had been struggling for so long to reach. As we gazed at that snug-looking harbour, a pilot boat put out, and with its engine wide open, it headed straight for us, executed a smart turn, and came alongside. The pilot knew only a few words of English, and it was some time before we understood that he hadn't come out to guide us into the harbour, but to give us a tow, because the wind was against us. We thanked him in Spanish, but said we would rather sail in. With the pilot boat keeping close to us, we tacked into harbour, but as the wind failed once more inside, they took a line from us and then pulled us to a large buoy only a few yards from the quay. Then about half a dozen of the crew jumped aboard to make us fast and lower our sails. When all the clatter and noise had lessened, we realised that we were safely chained to the bottom of a charming stormproof harbour and that we had brought our disabled craft to a port where there was every facility for repair. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.